following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. If you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me pray once more. Our God and our Father, I praise you right out of the gate here that we can sing what we just sung. That one day we will be separated from our body and we will be face to face with you. I thank you that we have such a strong confidence in this moment, in this future moment, though we can't see it yet. We can have such certainty in that day. And I thank you that we can have this certainty because of what you did, Lord Jesus. What you did for us undeserving sinners. How gracious, how merciful. How extravagant, how lavish was your love to us sinners who deserve none of it. And yet you've done it because that's who you are. Because you are good. Because you are wonderful. And because you decided in your awesome character to save, to graciously, mercifully save. Lord, as I, I, I pray that as we look at the details of, of how one day you will complete our salvation, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will, you will speak through my words, that you will give strength to my voice, that you will speak through your word, that you will enlighten our hearts and change us, that you will grant us to truly truly value, to truly treasure you above all things and to truly stand in, and live in a certain strong hope of that coming day when you save us, when you bring us to yourself and we stand face to face with you and we praise you. We stand and we receive what is infinitely good. We receive you. So, Lord, I pray right now during this sermon, will you give us you? Would you give me grace to look like you and to sound like you and to speak you by you for your glory, I pray. Amen. Time is short. It's so weird that it's 2012. It doesn't even sound like a real year to me. I mean, it... It sounds like a, you know, a science fiction movie title, but not something that I write down next to my signature on a check or something. Um, time goes by quickly. And nobody knows how much they've been allotted, right? Several of us have lost loved ones this year. I'll never forget that day, that moment, February 7, 2005. Our daughter Megan had been born the day before. And we were at Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs. And I had stepped away to get lunch, and I was in the hospital cafeteria when the phone rang. 
It was our dear friend and mentor, Elaine. Bob, whom I've mentioned before from this pulpit, her husband had suffered a heart attack. It came on too quick, Elaine said. Too quick. Bob is gone. He's gone to be with the Lord, Jed. Well, the shock of it was followed by days and weeks and months and years of grieving and walking alongside Elaine and her grief. Job's friends came alongside Elaine. (laughs) Some of them nobly sitting by her and just listening for days on end as she grieved. And other friends like Job's saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, thoughtlessly. And other friends just stayed away, just silent, never saying a word. In fact, a few of them, a few years later, came up to her and apologized, explaining that at the time, as she was grieving, they just didn't know what to say. They just, they, they just didn't know what to do. So they stayed away. There is a cold clarity in death. Things are put in clear perspective, um, as they are if we will let them at the end of a year. Death has a way for the living of clarifying who we really are and who God is. It forces the question, do I really believe what I believe? Do I, do I really believe it? And then to take the answer to that question, it begs another question. How does what I believe matter right now? And how does the death of Jesus Christ make any difference to me right now in my grief? or in the grief of my friend. Death has a way of bringing to the foreground the questions that we should have been asking all along. What is my real destiny? What about the loved one who is gone? How how do I grieve? Or how do I help the grieving? Well, these are the sorts of questions that the Thessalonians were faced with. One of their number died, perhaps as a result of persecution, And it was probably sudden. Paul told them that Christ would soon return. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, they too would be resurrected. And like most early Christians, they expected that return of Jesus to happen very soon. They expected it to happen within their lives, any day. So when one of their number died, the question arose, wait a second, what what does this mean? Will he miss out? When the Lord returns, if he comes down, well, what about Joe? When the Lord returns, if he comes back tomorrow, is he going to miss out? Is he going to miss out on all the blessing and all the, the wonder and the, huh, what, what's going to happen? And these questions plunge them into a hopeless grief, a careening grief that could not be controlled. So they asked Paul these questions. They needed clarification. So in the verses before us today, Paul answers their concern, giving us some of the the clearest details in Scripture about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's soon return. Let's look at the passage. We're going to look today at verses 13 through 18. And I believe verses from chapter 5 are also printed in your bulletin, but um, we will get to those the next time we're in 1 Thessalonians. Today we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll read that. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, 
God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of the Lord. Well, the answer that he gives to the Thessalonians has profound implications for us. Not just for the situation of grieving, although it informs us in grief tremendously. But Paul's answer informs us, it should inform us in all of life. In every nook and cranny, every small moment and every big moment of life, Paul's answer should inform us. If we understand Paul rightly, it should result in a couple of questions. What is my comfort as I face this life and the certainty of death? What am I really taking comfort in? And as I consider this question, another one arises. Is this comfort really comfort? If I say that my comfort is Jesus Christ, well, then is he really a comfort to me in this life? Is he really a comfort to me as I face the certainty of death? Last time I checked, the death rate among humanity is still running at even 100%. (laughs) Death is a certainty. Is Christ really our comfort? Paul's answer does not involve psychological techniques, but the giving of knowledge and truth, the adopting, the leaning hard into trusting knowledge and truth as given to us by a word from the Lord in Scripture today. Since the Lord Jesus died and was raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead and always be with him. This gift is given to all who believe in Jesus. As Jesus conquered death, so will all who believe in him. They too will conquer death. And the ramifications of this are massive. Not just for facing death, but for facing today and tomorrow. For facing whatever happens after the alarm goes off tomorrow morning. So our big point today, our big point is this. And I'll repeat this. Christ beat death in our place, giving us the hope of being with him forever. And we need each other to endure in this truth to the very end. That's a mouthful. I understand. I'll read it it again. Christ beat death in our place, giving us the hope of being with him forever. And we need each other to endure in this truth to the end. So let's walk through the text now and we'll hopefully see where this comes from. Paul states the problem in verse 13. Again, they were uninformed on this vital piece of information about Christ's second coming. And in missing this this piece of knowledge, they had had plunged into this this hopeless, uh, unending grief. Just like the rest of the world. Paul's concern for them was very gritty and very personal. He loved them, and he did not want to see them suffer more than was necessary in their grief. But his answer his, his answer was not to give some glib assurance that their beloved was in a better place, although that was true. Paul wants to give them real hope. 
real, abiding, strong, certain hope. This hope is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which he begins to lay out in verse 14. Christ's death and resurrection guarantees that when he himself returns to earth, he will bring with him all those who have been sleeping in him. That is, all, who had, all those who have died believing in his death and in his resurrection. Believing in it, depending upon it. More on this later, but for now. If the gospel applies anywhere, it applies here. We have a strong and certain hope that Christ's death and resurrection means that we escape death. As we face death, the gospel intrudes and invades and says, you you will never experience death. You are free of death. Praise God. Then beginning in verse 15, Paul prophetically gives us God's words about what this will look like. And the counterintuitive thing here is that the dead in Christ will actually have the privilege of going first. The Thessalonians were worried, you know, that they were going to miss out when in fact the dead in Christ get there first. They will, we will not precede them, Paul says. Verse 16 elaborates that Christ will descend from heaven with a triumphant, victorious call, commanding with a, a shout, a cry of command, that all those who are his come to him. And the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are left, who are still living, will meet him with them in the clouds. Like the joyous citizens of a city rushing out to meet their king who is returning victorious from battle. Um, so we will meet the Lord halfway as he descends from heaven to earth. What a day that will be. And we will be with him forever. We will see our king face to face. Imagine that. What a moment that will be. What an awe-inspiring moment that will be. And not only that, I just picture in my imagination, in that moment, and all that's going on, to spot Bob and to say hello again to my old friend. What a moment that will be. And though we would like more information, I sure would, more data to fill out my imagination, that's where Paul stops. <laughs> um, and so he says, <clears throat> encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. As we will see later, Paul's first concern here is to comfort the grieving. But Paul actually doesn't comfort the grieving through these verses. Paul is actually equipping the church so that the church would comfort each other. (laughs) Paul is reminding the church of the hope that we have that they may encourage each other with these, with these words. When it comes to the church, when it comes to grieving, we are all pastors. We are all pastors. We are all shepherds when it comes to grieving. Paul is equipping us for this task. For this task. <clears throat> All right, that's the text. Well, here are two observations this morning upon the text. Two observations. Number one, Christ experienced and conquered death. In our place. Christ experienced and conquered death in our place. Giving us the strong, certain hope of being with him forever. Giving us the strong and certain hope of being with him forever. Now, 
We grieve. Make no mistake. Christians grieve. Oh, we, we grieve. We, we see the effects of sin. We remember how we've contributed to the sin of this world. We see the, the results of sin in this world and we grieve. We weep like Jesus. We grieve. There is grief even for Christians that, um, like the deepest oceans where light can no longer penetrate, there is a grief that sears down so deep that words can no longer go, go that deep. C.S. Lewis, when he was reflecting upon the grief that he felt at the death of his wife, observed in himself how similar his grief felt to deep fear. There got to this point for C.S. Lewis and for many others, I think, where he had words really describing what it felt like. Grief for a Christian is real. But at the same time, we grieve with a strong and certain hope. And, it, you know, if we're honest, it's weird. It's weird. The grief doesn't go away, but it's enveloped by this strong abiding hope, this strong truth that is still true no matter how we feel, no matter what the circumstance is. The hope we have in Jesus transforms our grief from this deep despair of the world. Um, Archaeologists found a letter from the second century that reads as follows. Irene to... Tenophorus and Philo, good comfort. I was sorry and wept over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. But, nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort ye one another. <laughs> Irenae, the writer of this letter, sought to comfort his friends, but, but only in the way that someone can who really has nothing to offer. Annie and I received a letter much like this over Christmas about an unbelieving acquaintance who recently died. And it contained in the letter that same empty phrase that that person was now in a better place. The cold comfort of really having no real hope. But here's another letter, also from the second century, from a Christian named Aristides, describing how Christians at that time would mourn. And if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God, and they escort the body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. (laughs) Love that. The hope of the gospel transforms us and our grief, and it frees us from the, the, the cold despair and the trite platitudes that a hopeless world has to offer. Well, it's in verse 14 that there's this small detail, this small detail of infinite power that I want us to see today. The small detail will refine our hope. I'll read verse 14 again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I have a little note here in my notes for God to give me grace and strength and clarity to explain this well. Because this truth is wonderful. It is awesome. (laughs) Um, Note here how Jesus' death is described and how our death is described. How are they described? Nowhere in all of Scripture is Jesus in death described as sleeping. 
And yet over and over again, Christians are described not as dead, but as asleep. The sleeping ones. Why is this? Why, why this dichotomy? Well, quite simply, when Jesus died on the cross, he fully experienced death in our place. Yes, he, he took God's wrath upon himself, taking our legal guilt upon himself. And not only that, he took upon himself the punishment from God for our sins in our place. His death satisfied God's just wrath for our sins. Jesus did all of that on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, that is all true. But even more than that, Christ also experienced death fully in our place as our substitute for you. He experienced it in our place what was promised to Adam and Eve if they disobeyed. The wages of sin is death, and Christ endured the full horror of those wages. He did this for us, that death might be transformed for us. Transformed into sleep. Harmless sleep. Christ drank the bitter cup of death, gulping down its terrors, so that for you and I, death might be harmless. Harmless. (laughs) Yes, sometimes preceded by great suffering, by great pain, by great toil, by great struggle. And yet, in the end, eternally for the Christian, for the person who believes and is trusting in Christ's death and resurrection, harmless. Harmless. Amazing. Christ experienced the full measure of separation from the pain of death so that you never will. So that I never will. Our bodies will sleep, but our souls will be immediately with him. Amazing. The great enemy that no one ever had hope to fight against, that no one ever had any hope to beat, Christ beat. And now you have that if you are in Christ. And that is offered to you if you are not. Freedom from the pangs of death. If you are in Christ, Christ experienced death for you, so you will never have to. Praise his name. This is why in the NIV, or in the New American Standard Version, the phrase in Jesus or in him is connected with those who are asleep. Um, If you have the ESV or the RSV, that phrase is put in a different place. But if you have the NIV, the New International or the New American Standard, I think you're looking at a clearer rendering. The only way we sleep in the Lord, instead of experiencing death for ourselves... It's because of what he did by being in him, by being in Christ. The only way that you are in him is by trusting in his death and resurrection, that he died for you, to experience death for you. So here I want to draw a vital distinction. Uh, Those who sleep... And do not experience death are those who have believed upon Jesus. And his death was in their place. This, I think, for some, 
is different than dying as a Christian. Um, one is inward, one, one is outward. All that I am saying today boils down to one simple and vital question. Do you believe that Jesus died and was raised in your place for you? That is the vital question. Is that where your ultimate hope is found? Is that where your hope is really placed? Or let me ask it another way. When you and I are gone, what will those closest to us have to hope in about our final destiny? What will they look back on to, to grasp for hope that we were good and upstanding citizens that we attended church regularly that we served with this distinction that we died as a Christian or will it be that we trusted in another to beat death for us that our lives displayed this living hope that Jesus died in our place that even despite all our wealth and earthly treasure, we demonstrated a sincere longing for him to come because he is our true treasure, our real treasure. The end of Hebrews 9 says that Jesus is returning again, not to deal with sin again, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. Does this describe you? Does it? One way that we see this is in the quiet moments of life. John Piper once discussed his struggle with those first waking moments of the day and how sometimes a sense of foreboding would come over him. You've ever felt that? First thing in the morning you think, this is the day that it all falls apart. <laughs> this, is, this is it. You don't know why, it just, that's how you feel. Well, what do we do in response to those feelings? What we do says a lot about where our hopes lie, I think. Do we turn to things that will distract us and get us through those moments until routine takes over? Like, I don't know, checking Facebook right there at the bedside. Or do we turn to something that intoxicates us? Alcohol, pornography, entertainment, food. Or do we stew and worry and shut down in this self-absorbed ball? Or do we turn to the one upon whom we have believed? Do we, do we search the scriptures for his promises? And do we grab hold, do we, do we grab hold of those promises once we find them and, and carry them to the foot of the cross once again and remind ourselves of how much we have in Jesus? How much we are in him and how strong that is. Though you are in Christ, you, you may need to develop this discipline this year. To run to the promises of God more readily. To, to find your today more and more informed by his death and resurrection in the past and his soon return in the future. Well, after my friend Bob went to be with the Lord, our, our pastor was flipping through his Bible and he found this little note written in the margin of one of the pages. If I remember right, it was next to uh, Isaiah 40. That wonderful passage of God's comfort to his people. His mercy and his grace. Why? Simply because that's who he is. Simply because he sovereignly chose to work and to save. <laughs> Wonderful chapter. And on the margin was written, God is the blessed controller of all things. Just a little pencil. 
God is the blessed controller of all things. I, I picture Bob up early in the morning meditating on those verses and that little but massive truth. And then taking that truth and, and putting it up against the worries of the day. God is the blessed controller of all things. And I am in him. And he has given me his son. And now that he has given me his son, how will he not also with him give me all things? Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Okay. Time for work. (laughs) Time to go. Perhaps this is the year you more consistently feed your hope by investing in the, the chapter 40s of Isaiah, perhaps. Or in the Psalms. Um, there's a couple of those reading plans out in the hallway that take you through the Psalms twice in a year. I encourage you to check them out. Perhaps even this week you will need to run to a Psalm like Psalm 16 again. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore <laughs> we can read this psalm we can pray it we can trust it we can run to it and grab hold of it because of what Christ Jesus has done for us by faith in him we may hold on to the psalm and make it our own it's interesting how this psalm in 1 Thessalonians 4:17 end in the same thought that to be in the presence of Christ is the greatest thing. The greatest thing. The most satisfying thing. In the presence of Christ, all our hopes and desires will be fulfilled. In the presence of Christ, we will finally rest. In the presence of Christ, we will finally experience what true pleasure really is. This world, even in its best moments, is just a pale imitation of that moment. This world, even at its best, is just a place where we are presently left, as Paul describes us in these verses. When we are tempted to think that our loved one has left the land of the living to go to the land of the dying, we need to remind ourselves and to remind other people that it's just the opposite. (laughs) That we've been dying all along in this world. This world has been dying all along. And only now are they now truly living. We've always been dying. I love what D.L. Moody told the journalist late in his life. Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. <laughs> in his presence, there is fullness of joy, complete, overflowing joy. We, we just don't have the words to describe it. We have to use a word like joy because... oh. 
Paul says we will have this awe-inspiring blessing always, always. Awe-inspiring and yet sometimes hard to see when we are in the throes of grief. Sometimes hard to see, which leads us to our second observation. We need each other's encouragement to endure in these truths through the trials of life. We need each other's encouragement to endure in these truths in the trials of life. As we've already seen, Paul ends this section with the command to encourage one another with the words that he's just said. Note that well. Again, the saints are to pastor each other in their grief. The pastor's job, my job, is to equip the saints for this work. That is God's stated job description for every pastor in his word. And the way we help each other endure is by reminding each other of the truths of the gospel, artfully and thoughtfully applied to the other person's life. Well, as I understand it, I've been told that this church has been known as a theologically astute church for most of its history. Well, to the extent that that's true, verse 18 carries with it a challenge for us. For Paul, theology is nothing if it if intensely practical. Theology is intensely practical for Paul. You don't know your theology unless you're able to apply it to your own life and to the life of your spouse and those around you. The truth of the gospel applies everywhere, and we've seen this already in 1 Thessalonians 4. It applies to sex. It applies to work. It applies to politics. It applies to friendship. And it applies to grief and death. My favorite analogy here is one of an airplane. <clears throat> if someone can fly a plane while it's in the air, Tim Corder, but if they can't land it, are they really a pilot? <laughs> if we know our theology, but we can't apply it to our own life, if I can't apply it to my wife's situation, do I really know it? I don't think so. Paul would say, no, you don't. If we can't apply our, what we believe to the person sitting next to us at gospel community, we don't really know it. Christian, God's call upon you today is to take the truths of the gospel and be able to land the plane into your own life and those around you, whoever that is, to one another. There are three people for whom this is very important. Uh, first, too often this passage is wielded by some not to encourage others to endure, but to encourage others to agree with our particular view of the end times. It's good that we have an informed, an informed opinion here. We should. We need to be informed about these verses. But we forget what this passage is primarily intended for. And the result? The result can be catastrophically ugly. But then there are others who see that ugliness, and then they don't want to have anything to do with thoughts of the end times. They just don't want... They're done with that whole business. I know one person in this church right now who has told me that very thing, that after witnessing an ugly encounter over an end times discussion, decided, and this was seven years ago, decided, I'm done with it, and hasn't thought about the truths that we're talking about today since because of that one encounter. This person doesn't want to engage in the ugliness. That's good. But they miss out on the magnificent truth that Paul is sharing with us today. 
And if you find yourself in this camp today, I tell you, you must, you must have an informed opinion about the verses that we're talking about today. Not to be able to engage in arguments, but to be able to build up to encourage the saints, to be able to encourage yourself and those around you, to be able to endure in the faith. But then lastly, left behind in all this is the person who actually needs this encouragement. Either way, they're deprived of the encouragement of the gospel and the comfort of the cross. They need help and they need the sustenance of hope to endure. And all our theological knowledge is worthless if all we're doing is staying up in the air in a holding pattern, never landing the plane. So this ability to land the plane is crucial, and I can think of at least two reasons. One is that the pain of grief can dislodge us from enduring in what we know to be true. Sometimes the the shock and the pain, especially of sudden grief, can, can expose cracks in one's faith. Cracks that, that need to be filled in, that need to be strengthened, not necessarily by that person, but by the, the people around that person, the people who are friends with that person in church, the people that, that see that person, that know that person. They're the people that need to help them fill in the cracks, strengthen them. And we do that sometimes by simply reminding the other people of God. So much of biblical counseling entails reminding another person of God where he's one, he once has been forgotten. Well, secondly, <clears throat> grief is as much a temptation as it is a trial. Throughout the New Testament, the words trial and temptation are used interchangeably. In fact, for many of the writers, it seems they're one and the same thing. The trial of grief does not necessarily humble a person and bring them closer to God. It may, in fact, reveal and amplify a sin that was previously hidden. Now, I'm not saying that we go around to grieving people and tell them how they're sinning. (laughs) But for the sake of their growth, for the sake of their endurance in Christ, we come alongside them and we remind them again of the hope that we have in Christ. We remind them again of what Christ has done. We come alongside them again and remind them of these words that Paul is sharing with us. Satan prowls around like a, like a roaring lion, Peter says, looking for someone to devour. And you mix painful, shocking grief with unbelief. And you've got an exposed person. You've got a person at the back of the pack ready to be devoured. And a true Christian friend comes alongside that person lovingly to encourage them, to build them up. They won't let them fall behind. Well, I want to spend the rest of our time today with just a few thoughts on what this can look like, this business of landing the plane especially to the grieving, because I think many of us just don't know what this looks like. And that's okay. Uh, but, but many of us need, need information. We need knowledge on, on how to apply this. And we need to remember first that the problem that Paul was addressing was uninformed, despairing, hopeless grief. Now, when faced with grieving in another person, you might be reticent to speak up, to speak quickly. And that's wise. We should listen. We should be slow to speak. And yet, when it becomes apparent that grief is being enlarged like a and and running away like a runaway train because God has been forgotten, a Christian friend does step in with the truth of the gospel. 
with the truths that Paul is giving here and how Christ's death and resurrection applies right here, right now. We need to speak up, not to correct the other person, but to comfort them in love. Job's friends were not wrong to speak up. They were wrong in what they said when they opened their mouths. That was their problem. So when we speak, we need to return to these words of Paul and humbly, prayerfully, with an empathetic mind, remind the other person of these truths. There's a few other words I'd like to put alongside these. Um, And some of these thoughts are not original to me. If you would like a fuller discussion of these, I would be happy to provide that for you after the sermon. The first word is freedom. We said that at the beginning, Paul never says that Christians should not weep or mourn. And sometimes we need to communicate to the other person, they are free to mourn. They are free to express their grief. That to be a Christian does not exclude grief. In fact, that sometimes Christians may, may feel grief even more deeply than the world because they understand where it comes from. And they understand the, the dynamics of sin in this world. And they may feel it more fully. We need to communicate sometimes that you have the freedom to grieve as you are. Though again, we must always keep one hand on our hope in Christ, never letting go of that. The second word is honesty. If you visit someone or you just speak to them in the hallway and you know they're going through deep grief, don't avoid them. (laughs) Don't avoid them. If you don't know what to say, just be honest and say, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Just say that. Or just say, "Uh, I'm sorry. And be silent. (laughs) Or maybe later on over a conversation, over coffee, ask them, what was your wife like? Tell me about her. But be honest. Be honest with them. But maybe, maybe silence is just all right. Just to be with them, to grieve with them in silence. As we said, grief goes down deep where words aren't found anyway. But like Job's friends in their first week with him, your silent presence could mean much. But again, be ready when the time is right to share the truths of the gospel that Paul has been sharing with us today. The third word is join. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to join in with each other when we grieve. You ask the question, if someone were to experience a death in this church, how would it affect you? I mean, would you grieve? Are you close enough to others in this church that that you would grieve over any death in this church? We need to join in with others, regardless of how long you've been in this church. Join in with your brothers and sisters in their grief. Walk a mile in their shoes. Join in them with their weeping and simply reflect as Jesus did at the results of sin that characterizes this world. But again, as you do, preach to yourself the hope that Christ has has proven for us by his death and his resurrection. Never let go of that and always be ready to answer with that. The last word is help. And when I say help, I mean offer specific personal help. Not, hey, call me if you need anything. But, uh, hey, can we grab coffee next Tuesday? Or, as someone did for Annie and I once, um, after we miscarried, 
We're at your front door with pizza. <laughs> Can we come in? <laughs> it was the best thing that could have happened to us that day. We had the blinds shut and the blinds shut, and we were ready to hole up. It was Bob, by the way, <laughs> at the front door. And remember to prepare for this time in prayer, reminding yourselves of the truth of Christ's death, resurrection, and soon return. And remember, this call to encourage that Paul is giving, it applies to each and every one of us. Not just those with the gift of empathy or the gift of listening. This command goes out to each and every one of us. Well, before we quit today, I, I want to read for you a portion of Pilgrim's Progress. This is a, the scene where Christian himself faces death. And he's accompanied by his friend named Hopeful. Um, I hope this is encouraging to you, as encouraging as it has been to me. They then addressed themselves to the water. In entering, Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Selah. Then said the other, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Then said Christian, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about, and I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. I think I forgot to say the scene is actually a river. The river of death and life. And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian, so that he could not see before him. Also here in great measure, he lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met in the way of his pilgrimage. But all the words that he spake still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and heart fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in at the gate. Here also, as they stood by that perceived, he was much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. It was also observed that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits. Forever and anon he would intimate so much by words. Hopeful, therefore, here had much ado to keep his brother's head above water. Yea, sometimes he would be quite gone down, and then ere a while he would rise up again half dead. Hopeful also would endeavor to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate, and men standing by to receive us. But Christian would answer, Tis you, tis you they wait for. You have been hopeful ever since I knew you, and so have you, said he to Christian. Ah, brother, said he, surely if I was right, he would now arise to help me. But for my sins, he hath brought me into the snare and hath left me. This is Christian speaking. Then said Hopeful, My brother, you have quite forgot the text. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was as in a muse a while, to whom also hopeful added this word, Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. 
And with that, Christian break out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Then they both took courage. And the enemy was after that as still as a stone. Until they were gone over. Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon. And so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow. They got over The talk that they had with the shining ones was about the glory of the place who told them that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. There, said they, is the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels, and the spirits of just men made perfect. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king. Even all the days of eternity, there you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth, to wit, sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death. For the former things have passed away. You are now going to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to the prophets, men that God hath taken away from the evil to come and that are now resting upon their beds, each one walking in his righteousness. The men then asked, what must we do in this holy place? To whom it was answered, you must receive there the comfort of all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king, by the way. In that place, you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One, for there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desired to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the Mighty One. There you shall enjoy your friends again that are gone thither before you. And there you shall with joy receive even every one that follows into the holy place after you. There also you shall be clothed with glory and majesty and put into equipage fit to ride out with the king of glory when he shall come with the sound of trumpet in the clouds as upon the wings of the wind you shall come with him and when he shall sit on the throne of judgment you shall sit by him yea and when he shall pass sentence upon the workers of iniquity let them be angels or men you shall also have voice in that judgment because they were his and your enemies. Also, when shall again return to the city, you shall go to with sound of trumpet and be ever with him. Praise God. What a day that will be. Until then, let us live in this hope. This hope that Jesus has accomplished for us. Let us never let go of this hope. Let us feed ourselves upon this hope. Never letting go of it. And never letting go of it make it our Let us make it our habit of friendship, of Christian friendship, to be continually encouraging one another, building one another up in this strong, certain hope accomplished for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us encourage one another to continue to look forward to that day when our true treasure comes and we see him face to face. Our life will be done and all good will be found in him. 
Let us endure to the end. We need each other for this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, according to your steadfast love, come soon. Come soon and take us home. Take us to yourself. Bring us yourself, our greatest treasure, our only treasure in this life. Lord, we praise you this morning. I pray that you would work among us, that you would work through your word to make us your, make yourself our greatest treasure now. You are our greatest treasure. Grant us grace to lean hard in you in every aspect of our life. Make us a church that is characterized by building each other up. In these words, and what you have done for us on our behalf. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for enduring death for us so that we will not. Pray all of this to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.